Our scripture reading tonight comes from the book of Leviticus. Gasps heard all around. Chapter 1, verse 1. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word for us tonight. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. This is God's word. Hey, welcome to college. Uh, it's great to uh, see everybody back. You know, we always try, uh, especially in some of our early RUFs, to make an attempt to tell you a little bit about what we're about so that you can know whether or not this is something that's worth your time. Uh, and Will gave you sort of our brief version of what we like to present to people as why RUF is here. We're here, he said, because we want to give both the convinced and the unconvinced at Ole Miss a chance to listen to the truth claims of Christianity in an atmosphere that's non-threatening, where people aren't going to sort of be on you about the kinds of listening that you do while you're here. It's here for all kinds of people. It's not a Bible study for Christians. It's not a Bible study for non-Christians. It's a Bible study for anyone who finds Christianity curious. And quite honestly, there are certain places where you get to in the Bible and in Christianity's teachings where it gets powerfully curious. Um, I don't know about you, but I feel like it is Christianity's responsibility, especially during your time at college, to basically demonstrate why it believes that it's worth being interested in. Christianity makes very large claims about its view of the world, about its view of you, and about its view of humankind in general. And when you're evaluating those truth claims, a lot of problems are going to come up. And to be honest with you, I hear them all the time. For our purposes this semester, I've pulled out a little bit of a sample. <laughs> I wonder if any of you have ever heard anyone level these objections against the teachings of Christianity. I had someone say to me a number of years ago, you know, Les, one of the things that unnerves me about your beliefs as a Christian is the whole blood and gore thing. I mean, you people teach uh, this idea that there was this man who claimed to be somebody that we really can't prove if he was, and, and yet somehow he had to die? And there was some kind of bloody mess that God had to create of his own son in order to win us there? I mean, why is it that God can't just forgive people? Why all of these things? You know, a popular atheist writer, Christopher Hitchens, uh, puts it like this. He says, once again, we have a father demonstrating love by subjecting his own son to death by torture. He says, but this time the father is not trying to impress God. He is God, and he's trying to impress humans. Ask yourself the question, how moral is this following? I am told of a human sacrifice that took place 2,000 years ago without my wishing it, and circumstances so ghastly that had I been present and in possession of any influence, I would have been duty-bound to try and stop it. In consequence of this murder, my own manifold sins are forgiven me, and I may hope to have everlasting life. <laughs> you ever gotten a question like that? Now look, I don't want to deal with that question here and now, but I simply want to introduce to you this one fact. The very idea of the bloodiness of Christianity has its beginning in a little book called Leviticus in the Old Testament. 
Now, secondly, let me give you another example. I wonder how many of you have gotten in an argument with someone that went something like this. If someone ever looked at you and said, well, I believe that homosexuality is a sin. And someone responds to that person's statement by saying, oh, do you really? Well, I wonder if you have any shirts in your closet that are a polyester cotton blend. Because you know that in the very same chapter of the Bible that condemns homosexuality, there's also a command that you not wear two different kinds of thread sewn into the same material. You follow that one too? You ever heard that objection? I, I, I was on, uh, doing some research on here, came across createdgay.com where someone said this. They said, churches that I've been to don't check potential pastors for blemishes, eye defects, physical disabilities, and inspect a potential pastor's sores to ensure that they're perfect before the pastor is hired. For Christians who feel that Calvary wipes away the need to follow the laws in Leviticus, enforcing Levitical laws on homosexuals is grossly inconsistent theology. Hmm. Those Christians who wish to enforce the laws of Leviticus upon gay people need to admit that their theology is very inconsistent and potentially flawed. You ever even witnessed a conversation like that? The book of Leviticus can be an amazing sort of a tennis match of people bouncing back and forth with what in the world to do with the thing. Let me give you the third one. Leviticus tends to be, in my opinion, one of the favorite biblical whipping boys. Uh, Last year, almost exactly this week last year, President Obama was trying to explain in one of his speeches how dangerous it is to try to bring uh, religion into politics, a notion I might actually agree with. But he said something very interesting in the midst of it. He said, said, when talking about how many different ways there are to interpret the Bible, he said this. He said, would it be James Dobson's or Al Sharpton's opinion we should follow? Which passages of Scripture should guide our public policy? Should we go with Leviticus, which suggests that slavery is okay and that eating shellfish is an abomination? Okay, are you getting the idea... (laughs) If you put all this together, it began to occur to me a couple of years ago when we were planning our series in RUF that the book of Leviticus' mere existence in the canon of Scripture is for people who find themselves outside of Christianity a huge stumbling block. In other words, people tend to look at Leviticus and say, okay, I'm sorry, but if that's in the Bible... I don't want to hear anything else about the rest of it, thank you very much. And and I've found that in my own conversations, even people who are Christians, who profess to believe in the Bible, will treat Leviticus sort of like that that alcoholic uncle that tends to only come out at weddings, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, You know, he's kind of out there and he's loud and obnoxious and we just kind of wish that he would go away and we just uh, sort of thereby just ignore him. That's Leviticus to even Christians. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know what to do with that book. For some of you, Leviticus was where you stopped. Uh, You've ever had that sort of New Year's resolution where you're like, you know, doggone it, I'm going to read through the Bible. I claim to believe it, so I ought to read through it. And you got to Genesis, which was kind of cool, had some stories. You got to Leviticus, which had, you know, the ten plagues and wrath of God kind of stuff. And then suddenly you got to Leviticus. And all, it all ended at that point. 
Nobody saw anything coming in that, and nobody ever sees it. Okay, for better or for worse, we're going to march through the book of Leviticus this fall in RUF. And before you freak out and say to yourself, well, thank goodness, it looks like I'll have Wednesday nights free this semester. Before you say that, I simply want to place it in front of you, this idea. Is it possible that we could make sense of this book? And is it possible that a lot of the sort of offensiveness that it brings to us actually has a decent explanation? And if we could find this book actually meaning something, doesn't it mean that we have to pay more careful attention to the rest of it? Listen, I'm just asking you to follow me on a dare this semester. Because I'm going to tell you, there are treasures that are in this book that that are there for us to uncover That if you'll just give me one semester, I don't think you'll walk away ever looking not only at this book the same, but at the entire Bible. Now, how are we going to do that? How am I going to face this book in order to glean things from it that will actually mean something to me on the face of incredible irrelevancy? Well, I suggest three ways. In order to do it, you've got to keep three things in mind. You've got to see, first of all, the good news in the shadows. You've got to see healing in holiness. And you've got to see, finally, the reality in rituals. First of all, the good news in shadows, the healing in holiness, and the reality in rituals. Look, first of all, you've got to see that there are good news that that comes to us in the book of Leviticus but they're all in the shadows. Uh, every other year for the last decade or so, I have had the privilege of taking a handful of students um, from Ole Miss up to New York City. And I love our trip that we do. It's sort of a mission-type vision sort of trip that we take up there. The reason why I love this trip is because we get to go to places that most people don't go to on the sort of tourist routes when you go to New York City. I get a chance to take students into some of the darker shadows of the city and discover a side of the city where something amazing is happening. Things that are remarkable that the cultural elite in New York City, it it just passes under their radar. But here's what's interesting about that. Y'all, the more times that I go to New York City, the more I fall in love with that place. In other words, there's something that I've discovered in the shadows that has enhanced my appreciation of the whole. Look, for many of us right now, we treat Christianity in the exact same way. The book of Hebrews, which is actually in the New Testament, chapter 8, explains that when new Christians, New Testament Christians, believed in this Jesus character, their beliefs they were convicted were not a novelty to them. As a matter of fact, their beliefs, all of the truths came to them, according to Hebrews chapter 8, in copies and shadows. In other words, Jesus came to these people and said, you've had it all along, but it's just been in the shadows. And I'm here to drag out into the light what you've only gotten as a copy, as a form And suddenly when they studied the Old Testament again, those old images and shadows had immediate relevancy to their own experiences. I'll be honest with you, I think this is still happening to many of you. For a lot of you, your Christianity, if you profess it at all anymore in college, 
Your Christianity has been very shaky. It's been unstable. And for lack of a better way to put it, it's lacked the energy that it has in the Scripture. And I simply want to ask you this question. Is it not possible that something might happen to you this semester that happened to me in New York City? That as we go and delve into the shadows... That when you begin to look at the scaffolding, the the inner high steel structure of the New Testament that comes to us in what we call the Old Testament, that suddenly you might gain a new appreciation for it. That Christianity might come alive to you because you saw its roots, because you got a chance, as it were, to sort of look behind the veil and see the wizard on the other side. And have it make a good bit more sense. I want to try to convince you this semester that the book of Leviticus is the Christian message in early draft form. It's the same thing as the New Testament message. Look, it was the very first book that little Jewish children were given to memorize. Oh, yes. Memorize when they were given Torah early on in their education. It's early discipleship in early draft form. In other words, what we see in Leviticus is, um, is what would, is to the New Testament the foundation of a house that Christ builds. There's good news in the shadows, y'all. Come investigate that. But secondly, I want you to also notice that there's healing in holiness. Look, in order to get the context of the book of Leviticus, you have to realize who this was being written to. It was written to the Jewish people literally within days of being released from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Now look, I don't know if you fancy yourself a sociologist or a psychologist of any sort, but when your people group experiences 400 years of slavery, it starts to work on you in a bad way. You begin to struggle um, with, being, with the idea of being enslaved. These were a people that were full of addictions. You struggle with being jaded. These people were full of despair. You struggle with all kinds of dysfunction. People are full of self-destructive behavior. And so as soon as he gets his people, as soon as God gets his people out of Egypt, he calls one person in particular, a guy by the name of Moses. And he says, Moses, I want you to come up on top of this mountain. And I want up on top of this mountain to show you Main Street in reality itself. Moses asked for it. Moses looks and says, God, I want you to show me your glory. And God takes Moses in and he sees things that he can hardly believe. And then at the end of that time, while Moses gazes upon God's reality, he instructs him that he wants to go down and build a little tent, uh, sort of an ancient worship center, if you will, something that was called the tabernacle in the Old Testament that would become the New Testament temple. Because God said, I am going to create for you a little map, as it were. I'm going to give you a little small earthly copy of what you've seen up in heaven. And the fascinating thing about that temple was that God looked and said, every single piece of furniture, every piece of material is preaching a message. Every bit of it had something to say to his people about what reality really looks like when it's lived in the presence of God himself. And guess what? The book of of Leviticus follows right on the heels of the instructions about that tent. 
you look back at the end of Leviticus, it's all about what they were supposed to do in this little worship center. And so what we have then in the book of Leviticus is simply God's further instructions about what life around that temple is supposed to look like. Does that make sense? In other words, God says, look, if you want to come into ultimate reality, you've got to understand that there are behaviors that naturally correspond with those realities. Now, bear with me for a second. You do realize that your behavior has got to be consistent with the realities around you or you deteriorate. Have you ever noticed this? Let's take a crude example. If you decide that you want to dive into the deep end of a swimming pool and while underneath the water open your mouth and take a nice deep breath, you will soon discover that the behavior of breathing (laughs) is not consistent with the reality of being underwater. You can't breathe underwater. Why? Because there's something powerful about that reality. Let's make it a little more interesting. Let's say eventually you are married one day. Why is it that a spouse is so deeply hurt when he or she um, has an affair? And why they find out that the other person has had an affair and has cheated on them. Why are they so hurt? You want to know why? Because the reality of marriage is inconsistent with infidelity. And someone's going to get hurt in that situation. That's the reality. Look, I have argued for years, and I promise I won't digress, (laughs) but I've argued for years that this is what's going on in your dating relationships. You do this in your relationships with each other because you're struggling with understanding what this reality is between us. What are we? Are we friends? Stuck in the F zone, right? Who was I talking to about that this week? We wonder what the definition is, and we wonder what the behaviors are that are consistent with that. Why? Because behaviors must be consistent with the realities that surround them. Now think about that. Because Leviticus is coming to you and saying that that is exactly what's going on in the universe. Leviticus comes to you and says there is a reality in the world, and his name is God. And he is an all-encompassing, all-conditioning, all-sustaining, burning holiness. That's the reality of existence. And if that's the reality of existence, there are behaviors that must be consistent with that reality. Or guess what happens? You get hurt. Sin is, in many ways, self-destruction. It is an enemy against ourselves. And to this broken, dysfunctional people, God looks and says, if you're going to live in my presence, I've got to show you what reality looks like. And that means it's going to make demands upon you. But in the midst of those demands, you'll be consistent with what you were created to be. Second thing, there's healing in holiness. And thirdly and finally, you have to see the realities in the ritual. In many ways, this brings us to what I think is the most striking aspect of this book. You you can't read for even a couple of verses without being struck by the, I mean, honestly, the mind-numbing minutiae that get asked of these people. And I'm going to subject you to it (laughs) in our scripture readings in, in this semester. And that's okay. You'll survive it. But the reason I want you to see this is because God looked and told these people that there are 
There are reasons why I want you to live in these practices. You know, for us, we are modern people. And we look back at these um, ancient Near Eastern rituals and we just, it, they look so quaint to us. We look and say, why would anybody assume that these rituals had any kind of meaning? But now don't be too swift to do that, though. Because I wonder what those ancient people would say about, oh, our weddings. You ever thought about how weird a wedding is? Why the white dress? Really? Why the tuxedos? <laughs> Why the overwhelming expense? You know? Why the little plastic champagne glasses with the tatch on, you know, little uh, plastic things on the bottom? Why do we do this, right? That one went right past them too. Thank you, Will. Feeling your pain. <laughs> why do we do those things? You want to know the reason why is? It's because of something very fundamental to your humanity. And I really want you to get this. We always ritualize the things that we care about the most. You ever thought about that? You, tonight, I don't have to demonstrate this to you. You're already doing it. You will ritualize the things that you care about the most. In other words, if someone sort of invests themselves with a lot of energy for something, you will, ex you will create a life pattern to establish your daily existence which surrounds those things. I was at a, a church this uh, summer preaching out and about in some place, and I, I was listening to an elderly lady come walking in. I thought it was hilarious because she was late coming into church. And she was explaining to a friend, and again, I was just sort of eavesdropping, to a friend while she was lying. She was like, well, I was... I was half an hour late this morning because I was at home putting on my face. And I thought, that's, that, there's some truth there, ladies. Be honest. Is there not a ritual that you've gotten into? Why? Because we care as much as we do about our appearance. Listen, I've had more fun thinking about this this summer than anything else in this whole study. We are full of ritual here. Um, to be honest with you, I've begun to think about it in this way. What is a pre-party about anyway? <laughs> you ever thought about this? The pre-party is the ritual, right? These are the things that we go through. We, we go through a sacrament on our way to the grove, do we not? We find ourselves in these circumstances. And so basically God comes along and says, I am giving my people in the book of Leviticus a series of daily practices which when you look at them are going to show the larger picture of what I want our relationship to look like. Isn't that interesting? In other words, God says, I want you to do this like over and over again in order to show you what it's like to live in my world. Uh, in about a month or so, uh, many of you will be going through um, Greek initiation into your fraternity or sorority uh, membership. And you're going to go through all kinds of ritual programming that has been set long before you got here. Why? Because they're trying to impress upon you the values of that organization. They're trying to pound it into your head and into your heart to love that organization. And the ritual supports that. That's the book of Leviticus, y'all. I've talked to tons of people who have these incredible family rituals about coming up to the grove. You know, there's just ways in which you do it in the grove. It's just kind of what we do. We have a little tradition in our family on Saturday mornings when I'm in town. We go to the donut store, right? Why? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's not because of the donuts anymore. It's because there's something meaningful that the donut store means to me and my family and to my daughters and to my son. We love being there together on Saturday mornings. And so what we have in the book of Leviticus is Israel being, being given this graphic visual aid 
for what it meant for them to be able to express their faith in concrete terms. God looks and says, I want you to perform these things because in them, you're going to see ultimate eternal realities that right now are invisible to you. You can't see them. But I want to bring these invisible realities into your life, God says, so that you can have a tangible experience of it, that you can have tangible realities. I found this so interesting about this study, is that for most of us, we have inherited a version of Christianity that is primarily concerned with the internal, with the reflective, with the cognitive. And yet, in Leviticus, you get the blood and guts of Christianity, literally. Rob Bell says this. He says, instead of a treatise on the nature of the kingdom of death and its opposition to the kingdom of life, instead God instructs his people with strange skin diseases to steer clear of the temple until they're clean. He says, he says, instead of trying to describe a very abstract idea like substitutionary atonement, Leviticus instead gives you instructions on how to slit the throat of a lamb. The picture of blood spattering on your cloak as the lamb is placed on the fire lends vivid imagery to the penalty of sin. The entire sacrificial system becomes, listen, listen, one giant prop. A visual aid to find out what it means to truly be in relationship with God. There it is. That's it. Listen, y'all. The reason why I'm daring you this semester to stick with me for this trudge through Leviticus is because in the end, I believe that we're going to find Jesus himself. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I'm not getting rid of any of that stuff. You know what I'm doing? I'm fulfilling it. In other words, I'm bringing it out of the shadows. I'm coming to find good news from the shadows. I'm coming to bring healing in my holiness. And I'm coming to show you that there is a reality in obedience and ritual, to, ritual behavior to me that has grace at its heart. And I want you to know, it's okay for you right now to not believe that. It's okay for you tonight to look and go, come on now. How are you going to do this? Come on, magician. Pull that rabbit out of your hat. Okay, dare me. Come back next week. Join a small group. Talk with your roommate when you get home after RUF on Wednesday nights and be like, did you hear what that guy said tonight? Because I have no other desire than that this semester to create curiosity in you. Because I'm going to tell you, I'm convinced that this book is about one thing and one thing only, and that's Jesus Christ. Come along with me. Come see if we can find him. Because, doggone it, if we can follow him here, then it's going to mean a whole lot about the rest of the things that we see from him. If we can come and make sense of this obscure part of God's revelation, we're not going to be able to take the rest of it the way in which we used to. I dare you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, then would you grant us the grace, if you are even there, to show yourself to us. Specifically tonight, Lord, would you show us yourself by granting to us the curiosity that we need to stick with this. Uh, Lord Jesus, forgive us because we have stumbled across this book and maybe made it a chapter before we simply closed our Bibles. But if it's, th but if it's there, it must mean something. 
And so, Lord Jesus, we are asking for you to guide us. Lord Jesus, I pray especially for that person tonight who feels very much on the outside of Christianity, who feels very much alienated by all this, who has been glancing at their watch waiting to see when this is going to be over. Lord Jesus, for that person as well, would you grant them the the mere inquisitiveness to at least stick with a study to say, I wonder where we're going with this. What in the world, God, did you have in mind by including a book like this? Lord Jesus, if you would do that for us, you would have made our cramped little room here tonight worthwhile. And so would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.